For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, what could the U.S. judicial system potentially learn from Native Americans by observing how these communities respond to gun violence? A conversation with author James Diamond. A preview of Arizona Theater Company's new production, Master Harold and the Boys, from the play's director, Kent Gash, and one of its stars. And Youth Crossing Gender Borders continues with the story of a family coming to understand transgender through the experience of their preschooler. These stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. January 8th marked the ninth anniversary of the 2011 mass shooting in Tucson that killed six people and injured 13, including then-Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Next, reporter Emma Gibson talks with James Diamond about how some indigenous communities prioritize talking and forgiveness after violence. Diamond has spent more than 25 years as a criminal lawyer and studied indigenous law and policy at the University of Arizona. This conversation does include details about shootings. In your book, you start off by comparing non-Indigenous communities and Indigenous communities and how they respond after a mass shooting. What are some of these general responses? You know, I saw in communities typically in the United States that, you know, you get such anger and hostility, finger pointing and blaming and litigation and lawsuits and a great deal of blame focused on parents, parents of the shooters, rather than on moving forward and healing. And so the one example which is so profound is what happened at Red Lake on the and reservation. Can you yeah, Red Lake. That? Yeah, Red Lake uh, is a tribe uh, of Ojibwe indigenous peoples in northern Minnesota. And there was a school shooting on the reservation in 2005. But what was so interesting was that the community never turned on the family of the shooter. The shooter took his grandfather's guns, and, uh, and but he killed his grandfather first. His grandfather was the first victim. Uh, his grandfather's girlfriend was the second victim. He took his grandfather's guns and went and committed the, the horrible shootings at the, at the high school. The grandfather himself was never blamed. And in fact, the grandfather was given a very traditional funeral. But the community also didn't really turn on the shooter himself. And the victims said, he's someone's brother. He's someone's cousin. First of all, he should be remembered. And uh, we should look at what happened in, you know, that caused this, what led up to this. There were a tremendous amount of comparisons between the school shooting at the Sandy Hook Elementary School uh, and Red Lake. Very, very similar. In Sandy Hook, the mother was the first victim. Her guns were used in the, in the killing. And that's significant, of course, but she was very much blamed and treated as an accomplice. The shooter himself in Newtown, uh, nobody knows where he's buried, if he, if he was buried um, at all. There was no funeral. 
The mother was buried 200 miles away, apart from the community. Where is Red Lake? There was traditional mourning rituals. The shooter himself had a funeral where hundreds of people attended, which is quite remarkable if you think about it. And so these kinds of contrasts I found and studied and and talk about uh, in, in the book. What aspects of the U.S. judicial system and the tribal judicial systems support these different reactions? Well, I think that there is a rich history uh, in, in tribal cultures of talking things out after a murder, after a serious crime, after a heinous crime. And you have somewhere around 200, over 200 tribal courts systems in the United States. And there are many, many healing and wellness courts. And certain communities, like the Navajo here in Arizona, for example, have a whole uh, system called the Peacemaker Court. It's a, a diversion out of the court system where community members participate and talk things out, talk about a way forward. And what I discovered when I did my research was that People want to talk. Victims and their families, survivors, have questions, and they want answers. They want to know why. Uh, After Newtown, there was a a meeting that occurred between the father uh, of the shooter and parents of of the little children that were killed. Are these instances rare? Um, They're not common. But they have occurred. It occurred after uh, the, the shooting in Heath in, in Kentucky, uh, Heath High School. Missy Jenkins, uh, who was partially paralyzed after the shooting that occurred at her school, started uh, communicating with uh, the surviving shooter. Missy Jenkins sat down with him in prison and, and asked him why. Years later, after the killer had time to reflect and perhaps receive really, really important mental health treatment. They have interesting answers. They often can't really explain why they did what they did. And uh, in that case, uh, he, you know, he uh, talked about uh, the way he was treated at school. But these meetings uh, have occurred, and I think it's possible to integrate these healing sessions into the system. Well, and I feel like your book is exploring what's out there, you know, what's outside of the U.S. judicial system, and maybe, possibly, what could we incorporate into it? How likely do you think it is that the U.S. judicial system would incorporate some of these healing programs into their regular process? I'd like to think that it's possible, uh, and that certainly it'll do no harm. And it's not appropriate for every case, and it's not appropriate with every defendant and victims themselves, you know, need to make the individual decision about whether, and the victims and survivors, about whether they're interested in, in participating in, in healing sessions. Uh, and it's not for everyone. But for some of them, I think it, it would be a, a good move forward. How do you think it would be executed if it was incorporated into the yeah. U.S. judicial system? So I think that you need to have facilitators who are who have a you know more of a social work and counseling background and not lawyers uh, and judges do you think that maybe mass shootings are they too painful too serious to incorporate any of these peacemaking or restorative programs well they're, they're too serious to replace punishment but that doesn't mean that years later you couldn't incorporate a session 
I, I don't think it's a good idea to do these kinds of sessions right away. So I don't think it's a, a good idea to replace the criminal justice system with this, but incorporate it, uh, because I think that those few examples where there have been healing sessions have been met with, anecdotally, but met with as being quite valuable uh, by those who participated in it. Emma Gibson spoke with James D. Diamond about his book, After the Bloodbath, Is Healing Possible in the Wake of Rampage Shootings, published by Michigan State University Press. Three people are on stage during the new Arizona Theater Company production, Master Harold and the Boys. One is white and two are black, and events transpire that will not let them forget that. It was written by South African playwright Ethel Fugard, who is white, as a way to explore his growing up under apartheid rule. To direct the play, Arizona Theater Company invited my guest, Kent Gash, a New York-based stage director and teacher with decades of acclaim. Joining us is Udera Adamora, one of three actors who are bringing Master Harold and the Boys to life. I asked Udera, who was born in Nigeria, what was most important to project in portraying an oppressed South African in the year 1950, working as a servant to a prosperous white family. There are clues in the play, right, about how he, he carries himself, uh, cleaning the floors all the time, stuff like that, that affects the way he's going to carry himself. And his relationship with the black people around him versus the white people, all those things affect it. And I think to a certain extent, those things are still going to be the same now. Was that important to you? Was that on your mind, Kent, as the director? There are imperatives and factors in the play that impact how these characters move through the space that they're in. I wanted us all to be able to recognize, especially for black people in the audience, to be able to sort of recognize themselves in these men as well. Fugard is so brilliant, we see a range of things. Uh, you know, it just requires the actor to be extremely specific, which I think both Odera and Ian are incredibly specific in their work. So that's why they got cast. Well, how did this play first come to you? How did it enter your consciousness? And what was the message and takeaway you got from the first exposure to it? I saw the first production of the play in America at uh, Yale Rep with Jelko Ivanek, Zex Mackay, and Danny Glover. And then I saw the subsequent Broadway replacements with Lonnie Price, who's now a colleague and a friend, and with James Earl Jones, who was, you know, epic in the role. I had a kind of visceral response to it because it was a range of things that I had not ever seen really on a stage before. Because at that point, you know, apartheid was very much with us and was still a practice in South Africa. It was still the rule of law. And so to know that Fugard wrote the central character, uh, Halley, uh, you know, that's his experience. The play is autobiographical. And Halley, the, the young boy in the play, is, is Athol Fugard. And a great deal of it is true. And the impact of it on stage was extraordinary because the power, the dignity, the strength of these men, the complexity of these men. And, you know, Fugard's a genius playwright because there's a deep feeling and heart in the entirety of the play. Kent, do you feel that the social politics of this play, talking about apartheid South Africa and the relationship between these characters, two black and one white, is this 
more relevant or is it different seen through the lens of 2000 now 20 as opposed to say when you saw the play debuted it's interesting uh, it's a great question uh, because at the time the play was uh, first premiered in america apartheid was you know was we couldn't help but have that be the lens that we saw it through and so whatever your feelings about apartheid might have been came into the room with you came into the theater with you i think actually now it means something very different i think it's one of the great plays to examine white privilege and entitlement because this young man is at a moment where he is about to step into his manhood he is about to lose his innocence and there is a moment in every life where you can choose to step into privilege and entitlement that is not exclusive to race it can be about class it can be about a number of things but in this particular instance it is predominantly about race and he can choose to leverage the fact that he is white for the rest of his life and that has never been a more important thing to examine than it is right now particularly in this country which is angrier and more divisive racially than it has ever been in my lifetime and i was born in 1960 and it is actually worse in many ways than it was at the advent of the civil rights era when i was a child 67 68 69 I think I can clearly speak on behalf of most of the people who will be listening to the show, Udara, when we say, or when I say rather, that we don't know anything about Nigeria's history. We know Nigeria is very different from South Africa. The British left Nigeria in um, 1960. Nigeria became independent in 1960. West African countries were seen as the, how is it, the shining example of colonialism, you know, how colonialism can be peaceful and not violent in that sense. But, you know, there's still some things like, some remnants that you feel like, you understand, like there's always that sense that what is from the West is always better than what is from us, you know? There's always that little sense of inferiority. And I think that is a remnant of colonialism, you know? Well, Americans tend to pat themselves on the back for the idea that our pop culture is the world's pop culture. Definitely not now. <laughs> there's been like, especially in uh, pop culture, music, movies, uh, I can say that Nigerians have are stepping into their own in a very big way, you know? like embracing ourselves. I want to say in the 1960s, we embraced ourselves a lot, you understand, with the black power and like when African countries were becoming more independent and stuff like that. But like through the dictatorship, there was something that went down. But now it's starting to rise again, like African pride, in a sense, is starting to rise again. Also like an admission, growing up in Nigeria, I, I wouldn't say I was particularly well to do. We had the privilege of having people that worked for us, stewards. And seeing the relationship between Halley and his, uh, his servants that work at his restaurant is making me think about my relationship with the people that worked for my parents, you know. And in my case, I guess it was about class, not about race. I keep reflecting, like, did I see this person's humanity? Did I see this, that this person had a whole life, a full life outside working for my parents? Maybe in some cases that I thought I was being kind, I was actually just being, like, um, callous, like heartless, and you understand? And that's what I'm gleaming from the play. Kent, is there joy in this play? And if so, where does it come from? 
I think, yeah, there is definitely joy in the play. And I think there's a lot of love in the play, actually, which is part of the reason why the challenges that ultimately occur and that are presented in the play almost feel so surprising. Uh, you know, there's also things that are generational. It was interesting hearing you talk about when you were growing up and there being stewards in your home and how you might have treated them. But also you were, you know, you're a child too and a young person and children and young people, you know, for them, I mean, I teach in at New York University and so I'm around people who, who are 18 to 22 years old and you cannot convince them that they are not the sun, the moon, the earth, the universe, all the planets, that everything doesn't orbit around their wants, needs, desires, and opinions. And that's kind of as it should be. Young people are supposed to go through that, you know, but, and there can be a cost exacted. It's why I think they call it a loss of innocence. You know, you begin to understand that your actions have consequence, you know, and once you do certain things, mm, you may not be able to go back. I mean, I think there is great joy in it. There's great humor in it. You know, it's like a Shavian or a Shakespearean kind of play. I mean, it's three people, but it's it's heart and what's on its mind is kind of epic and much larger than three people. My guests were director Kent Gash, joined by Udera Adamora, one of three actors starring in Master Harold and the Boys. The play opens at the Temple of Music and Art in Tucson this Saturday and runs through February 8th, before heading to Phoenix for performances through the beginning of March. And now the second in a five-part Arizona Spotlight series, Youth Crossing Gender Borders. It explores the landscape of young people and gender identity. Laura Markowitz talks to teens, parents, and experts on the forefront of understanding the spectrum of human identity. Is it a boy or a girl? That's the first thing people want to know about a baby. By age three, most children develop their own internal sense of gender identity. When that inner identity is a mismatch with their biology, the experience can be confusing and challenging not only for the child, but for the entire family. Laura Markowitz has the story. It's a hot Saturday morning as Tucson prepares for its annual Pride Festival. Under the shade of a few scrawny mesquite trees, a couple is watching their three young children dash around excitedly. I'm Gary. And Susie, and we have a five-year-old transgender daughter named Zoe. Those are not their real names. They live in a small town in rural Arizona, and they don't feel safe coming out about having a transgender child. From a young age, uh, Zoe always exhibited, was born a boy, but always exhibited really feminine behavior. And we didn't really know what was going on at the time. Uh, Zoe was constantly wanting the girl version of things. So she didn't want to wear all the boy clothes that I had, and would sometimes refused to get dressed. It was a battle in the morning. Her Christmas list last year was 10 dresses, high heels, purses, and roller skates. We thought maybe we had a gay son. Because we just didn't know. I think our daughter is really the first trans person that we've ever really known. So she's teaching us a lot. Zoe runs over to say hello. She's wearing a dress with red and white stripes. Are you in school? Kindergarten. What's your favorite thing to do? 
um, doing worksheets. The transition wasn't necessarily so much of a stretch for me in terms of, well, I'm not going to have that pro football player anymore. It was more of a stretch of, it was just so foreign. It was a loss still in a way. Like, we have all these pictures of her when we would dress her as a boy because that's what she, we thought she was. And sometimes it's sad to look at that and be like, oh, where did my little boy go? But really, she's just always been a girl and she just couldn't tell us. Yeah, that's a big thing. Once she could articulate what she wanted, uh, that made it really clear. Listeners might think, well, this child is five. How would a five-year-old know? Our other kids, they always knew. Like, our oldest, he's a boy, and he, he feels like a boy, and he knows he's a boy. And our middle child's a girl, and she feels like a girl. I mean, she's not super girly, but she, our youngest is more girly. But she feels like a girl, and she knows she's a girl. So, I mean, if they can know, why can't Zoe? But she had to explain what transgender is to her older kids. Zoe's sister was confused at first that her little brother was actually her little sister. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on, but mom checked a book out from the library and I understood then. Zoe's brother says he wasn't all that surprised. Um, it was definitely okay and it felt like she was my sister all along. Do you think kids can be mean about this? Some can. I should protect her. I really should. If the schools and the community would teach about gender and sexuality so that the kids didn't think it was something odd that more people would be supportive because they would know to be supportive. Parents of transgender children have more than the usual trepidations about how the world is going to treat their child. So last year when she went to preschool, she started there as a boy, and she wasn't comfortable um, transitioning to a girl at school. So she would be a boy at school and everywhere else be a girl. That was her decision? That was her decision. Was it because she was afraid of being teased? Yes. She was afraid of, there was a couple of girls she went to preschool with in particular that she said would tell her she wasn't a real girl. You know, I asked her, what about for kindergarten? You'll, you won't have any of the same kids in your class? And she said she wanted to be a girl. So we met with the principal where she was going to be going to kindergarten and we explained the situation. Um, and they were on board. They are like, yeah, she can have a girl name. She can use the girl's bathroom. She can be a girl at school, no issues. And it's been good so far. Do they worry that they're making a mistake by supporting Zoe to live as a girl? What if later in life she decides, no, she's really a boy? One thing one of the doctors told us when we went was, the worst that's going to happen, let's say in two years, your daughter decides that, nope, it was a phase, they want to be a boy, which I don't think is going to happen, but let's say that does happen, right? The worst that you did was show your child that you're going to support them no matter what. That doctor was Andrew Cronin. He's a pediatrician and co-founder of El Rio Community Health Center's Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Youth Program. Honestly, the thing a lot of people don't understand is there is nothing we do that's irreversible until late puberty. No one does surgery before 18 years old. In a six-year-old, all I'm doing is calling them by the name they want to be called by, the pronouns they want to have used, and I think it's a really common misconception that like a six-year-old comes in and yesterday they told their parents, I think I'd like to be a boy, and they come and we do surgery and give them hormones at six. 
and we don't. Cronin has been a pediatrician for 20 years, but he says it's only in the last five years that he started to understand how to help trans kids and their families. I came into this thinking this was, you know, parents coddling their children and children choosing a gender. And I started meeting the kids, and then I started looking at my own, like the way I looked at things compared to what I know medically and scientifically, and realizing that I was completely wrong. There are an estimated 1.4 million adults in the U.S. who identify as transgender. But it's unknown how many young children are transgender. Andrew Cronin believes that increasing visibility in society is leading parents to recognize the signs in their children at younger ages. No parent ever comes in saying, I expected my child to be transgender. I wanted a child with gender dysphoria. All that parents want is their kid to be loved and to be safe and to be accepted. That's true for Zoe's parents. At the same time, they're also grateful that their family is on this journey. Even if our daughter decided to go back to a boy, I think we would stay ingrained in this culture because these are people, right? And it's so sad that they're marginalized right now. And we're now a member of that marginalized group through our child. And I was telling my wife, it's so unfortunate that it took our child being trans for us to be aware of this. Yeah, to open our eyes. I mean, we're totally on board to support not only our kid, but everybody else in the community. The floats are assembled and the march is about to begin. Zoe skips into line behind a group of kids wearing rainbow angel wings. She's clutching a picture that she drew of a rainbow heart and a heart with pink, blue, and white, which are the colors of the transgender flag. She waves them in the air and joins the parade. Her family is right behind her. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. The music for this series was written and performed by Noah James. For more information about support groups for parents of transgender children, visit the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. And tune in next week for episode three of Youth Crossing Gender Borders. Being a teenager, sometimes things are very intense. And we've got to help you guys live through that. Like, you hear the statistics, and it's just terrifying. For God's sake, don't be a statistic. Coming out as transgender can be lonely and frightening. Even the most loving parents can't understand what it's like. So one Tucson trans boy decided to interview an adult transgender man to find out what the future might be like. Transgenerational advice, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance from Elisa Ivanitskaya. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.